in a world where everyone knows everything. <laughs> yeah, right. One dad stands below everyone and yells, I know nothing. Please welcome. Please welcome. This is the Dad Who Knows Nothing podcast. Well, welcome everyone. This is the Dad Who Knows Nothing podcast. I'm so happy you could join me. Today, we have Nathaniel Turner. Now, Nathaniel Turner is an author and a TED speaker. He's a self-described humanity propulsion engineer. He's author of several books, including a history-making book called Raising Superman, which was all about him writing letters to his son as his son was growing up and talking about the different opportunities that his son would have. So I thought he'd be a great person to have on my podcast because uh, as parents, we're always looking for what's best for our children, dealing with different struggles back and forth between the school systems that they're that they're in, different goals that they have. It's always a, a, a pull and a struggle to try and get them to, to have the best life possible. And he's been able to be successful in that area with his son. And so thanks so much, Nathaniel, for joining me. Hey, thanks for having me. So one of the first questions that I always like to ask is, <clears throat> so where did this come from? You know, this Superman, I know that was a little, a little while ago that you wrote this book. Mm -hmm. What happened? Tell me the story of where that came from. All right. So the the Raising Superman, S-U-P-A-M-A-N, don't get me sued. Um, <laughs> Raising Superman is, um, is a collection of letters that I wrote. My then started it at writing my then two-year-old son. And I wrote him, I continue to write him. So that would be inaccurate to say I stopped writing him. I wrote him um, until when he went off to Brazil, um, I took those letters and put them in a binder. And those, some of those letters became what is now the book. So what I was attempt, attempting, to, attempting to do from the very beginning is that when my wife um, informed me that uh, we were expecting, I started making notes about the things that I'd want for my child. Didn't know we were having a boy or a girl, but just made notes about things I wanted. I hadn't shared those things with a child. Obviously, my child was small. But one day, as a, this two-year-old uh, joined me for a walk to the mailbox. And when we got to the mailbox, he says, hey, where's my mail? And I turned to him and said, um, you don't have any mail. And trust me, there's nothing good in the mailbox to begin with. You don't want any mail. And he said, but daddy, you have mail. I want mail. So we walked back across the street and I, I went, got in the car, drove to Target, picked up some greeting cards and some gift cards and started to write my son letters, notes, um, because he wanted mail. So I would mail him these postcards or greeting cards from the office. A few days later, I'd return home. He'd say, hey, daddy, I got mail today. Yes, I know, son. I'm the one who wrote you. Um, but I'm not going to keep reading them to you. And he said, well, teach me to read. So the interesting thing, one of the interesting things about Raising Superman is that those letters that you read are letters that help my son learn to read. And so he was a big fan of comic books. And one of those comic books was Superman. And if you remember when your children were small, there's some words that they have a hard time enunciating. And ours typically are those words. So he would say super instead of super. And so rather than make fun of him because he couldn't enunciate the R, I just say, hey, man, don't worry about it. You're my Superman, too. And so I've been calling him Soup ever since he was two. 
So that's that's pretty cool how it all came together like that, and and certainly a neat story about how you could have those uh, initial nice moments with your son and something that could continue to be built and you're continuing to do that going forward. Yeah, is that one yeah. of the things that you think that you, that men should do the moment they're discover that they're going to be a father? Would yeah, you recommend think, that? Absolutely. I think one of the things I, I say to parents all the time, hindsight being 2020 to become a parent takes a, an enormous amount of hubris. And so what I mean is all the time, I've never met a parent who said to me that I was prepared to be a parent. Most parents tell me there's no book, there's no manual, and I'm just like, okay, that's true. But what else in life would any of us be engaged in that requires the amount of time and attention for 18 years? The recent study suggests that parents spent over $300,000 to just raise a child who's just living above poverty. What else would we, would we do and spend $300,000 for and not have any training? But we do that as parents. So, it, you know, it takes an enormous amount of humor. So what I would say to new parents is that one of the things you should start with is to figure out what it is that you want for your child in the end. If the world were perfect and your child could be or do anything that you could imagine, what does that look like? Because I think too, too infrequently parents give up hopes and dreams for themselves. And that, um, I guess, that pattern of behavior passes down to what, what, we, what we expect and hope for our children. And is this something when you're, we, we talk about, you know, planning out and trying to see what we would want for our children. Do you, do you mean actually writing that down? Do you mean, is, is there something uh, you, you may have called it like a life template? What, what yeah. is that? It? So the, the, what I, I can tell you what, what we, what we did. So one of the things that I wanted to, for my son early on was I was a, a law student when I learned that I was going to be a father. And it was clear to me that I was not a great law student and that there was hardly any law firm that was coming to look to hire me. So my pathway was gonna be extra different. I paid an enormous amount of money to attend a law school. Um, there was no one looking for me. I had to find a book that said 500 things you can do with a law degree other than practice law. I'm like, okay, because 499 of these things, I still have some options perhaps. Um, what I'm realizing that moment is that if I go into a different school, if my parents had been able to prepare me better as, a, as an infant, perhaps I would have done better in grade school, perhaps I would have done better in high school, perhaps I would have had more college offers coming out of high school, maybe I'd have been able to go to a, a better school with larger endowments that didn't require me to go in debt to go to, to get a college education. Maybe I would have gone to a school where people introduce me and they say the name of the institution before they say my name. And so given that backdrop and my own childhood challenges, I said, well, what, what, what could we do for our son that would allow our son not to be positioned in the same place I'm positioned? And the first thing I thought was, hey, well, if he had gone to Harvard, if I had gone to Harvard Law School, when you introduced me today, you would have said Harvard Law Grad before you said my name. So like, okay, well, let's get an application from Harvard and let's figure out what it is that Harvard is looking for and let's start to create a template for that child before that child was born. And that's, that became the life template. Hmm. And so, you know, that, that brings up the subject of education and, you know, sometimes, you know, we think about children we think about, okay, let's, let's get them ready. There's a, there's a basic minimum things that they need to have before they start kindergarten and then the testing and making sure that they start hitting all these metrics begins. Right. Mm -hmm. So 
but by the time they begin to read right there there's already so many so much that they could have learned already but what have they what are they have already become what have they be, become already by the most by the time they've learned to read in most cases well aristotle famously said that bring me a child by seven i'll show you the man i think if aristotle was alive today people would challenge him about saying man but but bring bring me a child by seven i'll show you the adult which is to say that there's so many things that we should that we are doing and knowingly and unknowingly doing to create the adult that we may or may not want by the age of seven so i think that part is true one of the challenges that we live in a country that is that teaches parents consistently to outsource the responsibility of a child's education to somebody else. So for the first five, six, seven years, in some cases, eight, eight years old in some states, a child is the responsibility, sole education responsibility of a parent, a parent who has no training, no idea whatsoever about how to prepare their their children. And so then a child shows up at school. And we've got problems now because the child, to your point, is eight and then maybe they can't read and other kids are now reading to learn and you've had a group of kids who are just learning to read and becomes kind of a mess. So I, I, I've been saying to families for a long time that from the moment that your child is birth, it, it will be easier for you and better for your child the more stuff you know so you can help prepare your own child. And the pandemic illustrated that point even better than I could have ever done yeah and do you think reading is one of probably the most critical area where that that gap exists yeah i wanted my so interestingly enough i i read some work some work by by a gentleman by the name of glenn doman i don't know if you've ever heard of him but if you haven't and he's someone he's deceased now he runs an institute his daughter runs an institute in philadelphia i want to say it's the institute for uh achieved human potential or something like that. Or if you look up Glenn Doman or the Doman method, you'll you'll easily find that. The, the thing that I found out about Glenn Doman, found very interesting, is that he was um, educating children with brain injuries so that the kids by 18 months were reading and doing high-level math problems. And I and I so you know from looking at the material, I thought, well that's interesting. Like my child has no brain injury. And yet children with brain injuries are able to do far more than most kids that I know are able to do. So why don't I just not try to recreate the wheel? Why don't I just buy his books, you know, how to give a child encyclopedic knowledge, how to teach a baby to read, how to teach baby math skills. And so we just use some of those, those books early on to, as, as sort of things to use to help our child develop, to learn to read, to be able to do math and so forth. So that when he was three and, and uh, reported for school as a pre- pre-kindergartner he was already reading he was already counting and so forth hmm. and do you think that that's it's some of the societal changes that we see today too i mean everything is now digital everything is video based everything is snippets of content right it's on demand mm -hmm. and reading reading is it, it takes more effort you got to read you got to think what you're reading you got to put the sentences together to understand the thought you got to do all of these things instead of having it kind of be spoon fed to you, like you see on a lot of different applications that a lot of people are pretty much addicted to uh, when they're not when they're not doing other things. Right. I think your point is, and, I'm, and I'm, I'll use my word, but I think what I hear you saying is that we have to do a better job of helping young people with critical thinking. This is one thing to be able to read. It's another thing to be able to understand what you're reading and then 
interpret it, be able to share, teach it, et cetera, to other people. So you're you're spot on in that, that there's not enough of that. My dad raised me, unbeknownst to me at the time, using the Socratic method. So when I got to law school, one of the things that I was, I won't say good at, but one of the things I understood about law school, I was like, wow, this is all very familiar. This is this is my whole childhood. Anything my father wants to know, he asks you a question. And then when you answer that, then there's another question. And when you answer that, there's another question. And when you answer that, there's another question. And then there's an explanation for why did you do X, Y, Z? And you know what are the causes and effects of the things you do? So there's always this idea that you have to think critically. To your point, that's not something that we that we share or teach uh, children today. Yeah. And I think, too, we're so concerned about testing in school and having kids meet uh, a mark so that funding can occur and Mm -hmm. different things can occur that we're we're also not giving them a lot of opportunities to kind of test out and try out different things and learn and be exposed to a lot of different things because we're so so focused on they got to hit this mark in math. They got to hit this mark in science, you know, and there's certain time frames that they have to do it. So how do we fix it? How do how do we fix education? How is that? How is that get taken care of? Well, I think schools, um, states, cities, the federal government have tried a number of things, and to this date, you know, we've tried charter schools and we tried, you know, teacher prep programs, and there's a little bit of a initiative for around pre-K. But one of the things I I think we failed to do is that we've yet to equip parents to also be teachers. Every school that you walk into, there's two things that to me happen routinely, and, and I've yet to have anyone ever ask me this. The first thing is I've never had a teacher ask me, not a teacher, educator of any kind. And my wife happens to be an educator, was a principal, was a guidance counselor, and now is a, a university administrator. She's a dean. I never had anyone ask me what were the hopes and dreams I had for my child. Nobody has ever asked me that. So the, the assumption is that they always know what's best for my child without ever asking me what it is I want from my own child. The other second part of it is that if you and I were, we, we can't have children, but if you and I were um, living with a woman who, who was currently pregnant, the odds are that you and I would also attend a Lamaze class. So we have these classes about child, child birth, how to breathe and eating ice chips and rubbing her back and all those things. But when the child is here, we have no instructions whatsoever. So one of the things I would love to see is that we have something very similar to Lamaze for children after, after childbirth, that there's a child rearing uh, a course that parents have available to them live, on demand, um, you know, in person, where we can start sharing some of these tools and strategies, techniques that work so that more children can show up at school and be actually be prepared. Yeah, such a great point, because I, even I can remember you know, you're, you spend those few days in the hospital after delivery and it's, it's kind of like, yeah, they may show you a couple things. They may, uh, show you, you know, how to swaddle the child, different tips, maybe for breastfeeding, that sort of thing. But then after those two days or whatever that short time frame is, and it's like in the car, out you go out, out the door. And then the only thing you're really picking up then is, you know, if you, hopefully you have enough of a family environment where you have support from outside of just the parents where, Mm -hmm. you know, you get that support, you get some instruction, you get some help from others who have been there, 
But all they're really doing, to your point, is passing on what worked for them. And maybe they were in the situation where they didn't really know what they were doing. Absolutely. And I think all parents are in that mode where you're just like, I've, I, I don't, I'm just kind of winging it. I'm kind of surviving. Absolutely. And so, so it's a great point. You know, if we had, you know, we get instruction manuals for every piece of equipment we ever have, mm -hmm. but this child, you know, it seems like there's a lack of support for those first few years. It's a which great is, point. Which is bizarre because yeah. people have been having children forever to think that no one has said, hey, you know, these these standard things might be useful. And to your point about the manual, I can remember having a manual to put a car seat in for a child that I had no clue what it was that I was doing. And, and so I, I think, you know, again, you go home and my mother has these things she thinks I should do and my grandmother was living at the time and she'd have things to think that, that we should do and then, and I think you know just now in this moment I thought okay well it's a, almost like someone who used to drive a Model T and another person who got around in a horse and buggy telling me what to do with a Tesla like you can't tell me how to repair a Tesla you you were in a horse and buggy you didn't have an engine you now had a, you know, an engine, a, a traditional um, motor uh, engine, and now what we have is just electric. The, those things, while they are all modes of transportation, they are hugely different. And so the strategies to fix the car, the tools, the techniques that are necessary are all very different. And I think that's what was missing with parenting. We need to have some kind of continuing progressive education to help parents um, help their children reach their full potential. Yeah. And that kind of got me to, I, I was watching your Ted talk about, uh, it was entitled, we owe generations the an apology today. Mm -hmm. And you made a few good points on that. I, I don't want you to go through the whole thing again, but you made a few good points about some of the ways that people have these assumptions of generation Z. And we're seeing that again with now the next generation, right? That everyone is just like, Oh, they, they're, they're this and they're that. <clears throat> but the reality is, is, we're as much to blame for why they're like that Absolutely. as, as they are. Absolutely. Right. And maybe even more so. So it was a great point in that Ted talk. I appreciate it. It's just the old adage of the tree and the fruit that the, the, you know, we are the tree and it's an interesting thing if we went and pulled a apple off of a tree, but we really wanted a peach. Like <laughs> who are we going to be mad at? Are we mad at the apple or are we mad that we were at the wrong tree? So I think that that's the point I want to make that, it's easy to complain about what someone is or is not, but the truth is we've created them. So we really don't have a whole lot of room to be complaining about our creations. Yeah. I think, I think it's the old adage of every older generation is like, Oh, this new generation has right. it too easy. Right. Well, we, say <laughs> we all say it. Right. And it's like, well, we've, we've our advances and our generation have allowed the digital advancements and the things that have made everything so quick and easy for them. And now that's where their expectations are. And so now it's, it's like, they're going to have their own challenges because of that. So mm -hmm. how do we, how do we address those challenges? Yeah. It's like the yin and the yang, right? For every, for everything that's good, there is some, there is the opposite to it. I tell people, you know, you can have a word and you could say great. And, but the only reason that great has a meaning is because there's an antonym to great. Because otherwise we can't define greats. Like walking and saying that if, if if all we had were peaks, all roads would be flat. You have to have the other side to be able to see. So yeah, we can complain and say 
that life is really easy for them. But then there's the other part, hey, our communities are different. So we don't have a chance to interact with people in the same capacity that we that we did before. They're, the social skills, they they don't get that. That's not their doing, that's, that's our doing. We've made everything digital and so, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, it's, and it, it's kind of human nature to, to, to look at those negative things and kind of focus there sometimes. But, um, you know, I, I think all of us, it behooves all of us to kind of look at it from a glass half full kind of uh, perspective. And yeah, those, there may be challenges, but look at what, you know, what they may be able to accomplish that we, when we see things that our generation accomplished that we didn't think was possible or maybe prior generations didn't think was possible. Right. And now yeah. what are they going to be able to accomplish with that? Hopefully a lot. They got a lot of work. Yeah. <laughs> and there's, yeah, there's, there's a long line of uh, things to address for sure. Absolutely. So the other uh, aspect that I wanted to talk to you about was, you know, you had talked about a secretary of citizenry for the country. <laughs> yes, what, what, what do you mean by that idea to have that type of role in this country? I'm glad you asked that question. So I look at the lack of civility in our nation and I'm all, and I'm perplexed that we have secretaries for everything. We have a secretary for treasury. We have a secretary of defense. Um, we have a secretary of energy, but we don't have a secretary to help set the tone for what Americans are supposed to be. So then, then we, if we don't have a tone, we don't have someone to set the tone, then Americans decide for, for ourselves who we should be. Whether or not it actually fits with this, the so-called mission and vision of America, it doesn't seem to matter. And so that's what I was thinking. We need to have, at, particularly at this point in time, there's, you know, I don't have to tell you, got lots of uh, turmoil and um, incivility in the nation for any number of things. But I feel like sometimes that, that exists because we don't have anybody really providing any direction about what that looks like. In, in schools, kids don't have um, civics until they're jun junior in high school. So if, if it's true that there's this 10,000 hours of deliberate practice one needs to become an expert at something, then how many hours have we had of being experts at being uncivil or uncivil? because we don't take a class until we're juniors in high school. So I just thought it'd be interesting if we had someone at the very top that passed down to various states, here are the things, the standards for which Americans should uphold. Yeah, and I, and I think it gets to your point of, you know, that being consistent from the home and in the school. Yeah. And if you can have some type of consistency there, then you'll have, you know, these children growing up as understanding what it means to be a good citizen. Absolutely. I, th I think one of the biggest things that I see is that there used to, there's that phrase, right? Agree to disagree. Mm -hmm. And that used to be something that people would always say, you know, we can still, we can still be friends. We can still, but we're, we'll agree to disagree on this one fact. Right. Now it right. seems like they can't even agree to disagree. If, <laughs> if they, disagree on something now they're at odds it's like i don't want to talk to you i'm not going to be friends with you we're not going to talk and that's that's the thing that i just think is has been missing lately is is an ability to, to disagree on maybe a subject that is pretty tense 
but still being able to move forward and, and still being able to be civil to each other. Yeah, but maybe partially about the way we, again, while how everything is socialized, the earlier point about having an inability to think critically, I think that's certainly speaks to that issue. The ability to say to you, hey, I hear what you're saying, but I see it slightly different, but we're still going to be boys. Now let's go out and watch a game or have a drink or whatever. Yeah, exactly. That, that That's the critical thought of, all right, I want to have his, I want to have him as a friend, regardless of whether or not we, we agree on all the issues. In fact, there's no growth if the only person I ever spend time with is always fully in agreement with me. Like <laughs> the growth yeah. comes, as I tell people, from friction. There's nothing that grows without. Babies don't grow. Plants don't grow. Everything has some level of friction. So, But most people don't want friction anymore. Yeah. And I think it's also because the information that we, the information sources that we we used to have that we may put a look and maybe it was naive on our part to think that they were more trustworthy, mm-hmm. but they definitely appeared to be more trustworthy. I mean, when I was, when I was young, you know, the six o'clock news after the local news with Tom Brokaw, Dan Rather, I mean, that was, you trusted that you trusted that news to be factual. And now with so much media and so many different sources for people to get news, and everybody, everything's owned by corporations. So there's always slants one way or the other. Absolutely. That critical thinking is even more essential because Absolutely. you have to be, it's almost like you have to get it from one source and then compare it from another source. <laughs> right. And the actual story is somewhere in the middle right. and you got to piece it all together and say, all right, this is probably what, what the reality is. Yeah, what's the old TV show where they used to just say, just the facts, ma'am, just the facts, sir? <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, I'm like, can we just, just give me the facts. Today, a building burned down. Great. Don't turn it into a political discussion about what party should, I'm like, I don't want to, I don't want to hear all of that. But yeah. man, that, but that's where we are today with today's media and with today's news. Yeah. So it's interesting what I do sometimes with my daughters is they will sometimes hear different things right and they'll and they'll come and they'll say hey did you hear about this and i i i'm a pretty avid reader of news i like to see and uh but i want to test you know to see how deep they're actually looking into it so mm-hmm. they'll tell me and i'll say no i didn't hear about that what is that what happened and let them kind of tell me mm-hmm. and it's so funny how close it literally is at a surface level of just whatever the headline was, or maybe the first sentence or two of the story. Because, and and then as you go down in the story, you find out some other facts about Mm -hmm. something else. Mm -hmm. I remember she, my oldest came to me and she's like, did you believe, I can't believe the president got impeached back when, you know, Trump was going through that. And we had to have a discussion and I had to say, look, what you read was what, he was voted to be impeached in one side of, you know, in the Senate or the House. I can't remember which way, but it will never pass in the other side. So he'll never be impeached. Right. And and so just having that conversation with her got her to understand, OK, there's always going to be more that you got to dig into. So but it's interesting how sometimes it's just that surface. Wow. This is what happened. And it's like, eh, not really. Yeah, <laughs> there's a little more to it. That's the whole clickbait, right? To, to get yeah. us just to click, read something quickly and then go on to the next thing. Yeah. So obviously a lot of great work that you're doing, uh, helping parents, you know, start to 
build out, you know, and design this life that they want for their children. You make some really great points about, you know, trying to uh, get some of these things started as early as possible. I mean, because there's been facts shown that even reading to your child while they're still mm -hmm. in the womb is, mm -hmm. is beneficial and so many things like that. But I kind of wanted to pivot too, because sure. I know that you do a lot of work as well with your clients on helping them to have their best life. Right. So I think the, you know, we talked about your, your title, humanity propulsion engineer. So where did that part come from and, and how's that work going? Yeah. So the interesting thing about that is that I'm not an engineer by trade. My son tells me all the time, you know, I'm the real engineer. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. I understand. But there's a, a certain thing as a social engineer. And, I, and I, I would say this, I believe everybody should be a humanity propulsion engineer, which is to say, I just take the three words. We all know what humanity is and we know propel is to, to move forward. I would say move forward positively. And engineering is an ideal to come up with tools, techniques, strategies to move humanity forward positively. That's the way I look at it. And I think that's that's incumbent upon all of us, not just me, but I just thought, hey, it's a, a nice moniker, a nice way to se separate yourself from the, the masses. I didn't want to be known as a motivational speaker. I didn't want to be known as, you know, some inspirational guy. I just wanted to be known as a guy who understands that my purpose on the planet while my while I have time is to help serve and make sure other people know that their lives matter. And I do that by coming up with strategies and tools to help people propel their life and hopefully the lives of their children forward positively. And a lot of what you're talking about is, you know, you use the word design a lot. So mm -hmm. backward design, uh, using, you know, everything by design. So what is, what, what are you talking about when you're talking about by design? Sure. So let's take education as an example. If you walk into a school and you ask the school what college, if you if you want your child to go to college, because all parents will say college is not for everyone. Okay. But if you walk into a school and you do want your child to attend college, if you ask the school, what college or university is your school preparing my child for? Can they tell you? My experience, again, is I've never met a school, except for some, I shouldn't say that, there are some very elite schools where parents pay a lot of money. But the typical public school, charter school, parochial school, et cetera, doesn't have that. So to me, then there is no design. I'm not getting into my car and you say, hey, let's meet. And you and I say, well, we're, and we don't have a place where we're going. And so I feel like everything should be by design. So in, in, my, in our son's case, as I mentioned, I wrote Harvard. And the idea was to at least make sure he could meet the academic qualifications of Harvard. I can't make Harvard except him or anyone else. They say except 3% of the people who apply, but I can make sure that he meets the requirements for a school like Harvard. So that's the way I look at it. If the world were perfect and you could have anything you wanted, just like in your car, when you put in that GPS, you know exactly where you want to go. That's by design. You're not just driving around aimlessly. You do have a, a target or destination intended. I think life should be very lived the same way. So how would that be, you know, a great example with your son, but how would someone apply that to their own life if they were, and some of your clients that you've worked with, how have you helped them design their best life? Sure. So it, it would begin with asking a person if, for example, if I ask you, hey, if today was your last day, are there things you would regret having not done? And most people say, yes. If I said, hey, can you, if you wrote your obituary, and it could be what you want it to be, what would you include in? 
you might say, Nate, the obituary is just too morbid for me right now. I said, well, cool. Let's write your Wikipedia page as if it exists when you do your last entry. What would you like it to be? Because most, most of us, me included, will live day by day without giving any thought to what we want our, our end to look like. And I feel like now I, I understand this better, that we're all essentially living our obituary. We're living our eulogy. We're living our final words today because we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow and if tomorrow doesn't come then the best i can hope to do today is to be on a plan that's by design to be who it is that i said i wanted to be when my time was actually up so the, to answer your question is it would it requires a person to make a decision for themselves what it is that they see or imagine as being their best life and once you can determine that then we can start moving forward to make that a reality so one of the techniques that you had come across and you had had your son doing was journaling. Mm -hmm. And the phrase you used was journaling forward as an exercise. So mm -hmm. can you can you tell my listeners what that is about? Absolutely. So here's the interesting thing. I was a hypocrite. And because this is what parents do, we have our, our children do stuff that we don't do. So I was invited to speak to some prospective uh, masters and PhD students. And during that conversation, I was sharing with them all these things that, that our son has done to help him academically, the food he eats, when to exercise, when to drink green tea, all these different things. And one of the things I said is every day I ask him to affirm what he wants for his life. And we ask him to do that in a journal, but not to journal like most people do, which is to oftentimes write about things you're angry about or something that didn't go well the previous day, but to write about in your journal, an event that you would really like to have happen as if it's already happened. So journaling forward. The students asked me, do you do that? Hmm. <laughs> I said, uh, no, I don't. <laughs> and then I just realized, hey, man, you got to start doing that. So for the last four or five years now, I've been doing that same thing. I've been start beginning each morning for the first eight to 14 minutes. It, honestly, now it's closer to 20 minutes. But I get up, I don't say anything to anyone, and I write about my life in the future as I would like it to be. And what I've learned is that there's some brain science behind it, and you've probably heard it, that um, humans have about 60 to 70,000 thoughts a day. 90% of those thoughts are the same thoughts we had yesterday. And the one way to, to change that, to reprogram the way that we process our days, is to begin the first thing in the morning by thinking about something other than the things you've been thinking about in the past. And for me, that's just journaling about the, about my best life. So when you do this, are you, are you thinking about, you know, three to five years down the road, you thinking about next week or does it change day to day, depending on what you're, you're, you're focused on? Yeah. So what I try not to do is have any expectations about what it is I'm going to write the next day. And when I get mm -hmm. up there, I mean, it'll sound hokey, but I hear, I'll hear something, something internal and, and I'll write like this morning I heard, hold up, wait a minute. And today's journal was hold up, wait a minute. And, and I wrote about writing this book and it was titled hold up, wait a minute. And it was a bestseller and it was being used in schools and parents were using it. And so, but when I went to bed last night that I had no idea about anything about hold up, wait a minute. But I do that every day. And so the ideal is 
I, I'm writing about the things that I'm most interested in, in accomplishing. I want to, I like to be on the bestsellers list. I like to be considered a, a global public intellectual. I like to be able to help masses of people and build what we call a, a nano community to eradicate um, homelessness in this country. There are a number of things I like to do to, to, to a question I asked you earlier, if my life was over and I was writing my final uh, entry in my uh, Wikipedia page, I'm thinking about the things that I want to do with my life. And each day I'm writing about those. Got it. Well, Nate, this has been a good conversation. I, I've, I feel like we could probably go on for another two hours just talking about different things, whether it's parenting or uh, just uh, trying to uh, live your best life, because that's always a it's something that I'm fascinated with, right? Because everybody's different. Everybody has different talents. And sometimes it's just getting out of our own way in our own minds to uh, let those talents show. So uh, appreciate your time. If you could leave my listeners with one thought, what would it be? I would say that I would ask your, I would like your listeners, listeners to consider the word who. And why, who, because for me, who is the most important word on the planet? Um, Simon Sinek and others have us convinced that we all need to know our why. I think that that is foolish to be focused on a why. Our whys change. Why do I work? I work today because it's something I've been doing for 25 years. But why did I work 27 years ago? Because I learned I was going to be a parent. I needed to be responsible and make sure I could provide for a child. Your whys change, even if you stay in the same occupation. But who you are is a whole different matter. And as I mentioned earlier, who will determine who you are for the eternity? You won't be here, but someone else is eventually going to write your obituary, they're going to speak your eulogy, they're going to write those final words on your tomb or your urn or whatever it is that your final words of testament are. And so I think it's important for us every day to be uh, conscientious about who we want to be when our time on this planet is up. Well, nice. Well said. And so if any of my listeners want to learn more about you, is that just the good to go to NathanielAturner.com? Is it that is. the website to reach out to you? That's learn that's, about what you're doing. Okay. Yep. In order to be up where I'm, I'm in the process of finding some people right now to help me to, to change the website and all that, but yeah, it'll still be the same web address. All right. Sounds good. I'll make sure that's in the show notes. Uh, so excited. Thank you so much, Nate, for uh, joining me. This was a great conversation. This is probably the type of conversation that I envisioned always doing when okay. I started my podcast. So uh, I can't thank you enough for uh, giving me a few minutes of your time and, and telling me about your story and your journey to doing this. Anytime. I'm happy to help. And when we're done, send me your address so I can send you copies of the books. All right. Sounds great. All right. Thanks again. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for joining us on our journey to learn about various topics. If you'd like to get in touch with the dad who knows nothing, connect with him at the dad who knows nothing on TikTok and Instagram or dad knows zero on Twitter. If you have a moment and you like this episode, drop us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Have a great day and enjoy your journey through this game called life. <laughs>